You're listening to the New Story Podcast from New Story Church in Kansas City. To learn more about New Story Church, visit our website at www.newstory.church. Good morning, church. Man, I, I love being up here with you guys. Um, one of my favorite times of the week. I love teaching teenagers, but uh, believe it or not, you guys are much more attentive than teenagers even. Um, if you ever know, want to know what it feels like to teach teenagers, you know when you're sitting in a plane and <clears throat> the, uh, the steward, uh, stewardess or stu- you know, the person is doing like the motions like, you do this, you do this, and no one's even looking up from their phone? That's how it feels. It's the exact same way. So thank you, Brenda, um, on the plane, on the flight, for going through all the motions even though no one is paying attention, and we're never going to know what to do if something actually happens on our plane. Um, that, that's what it feels like. But you guys are much better, so I'm thankful for you guys, and I'm glad to be here uh, today. Uh, we have some work to do, so we're going to go ahead and dive on in again like we did last week. So I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Nehemiah 1. Um, Nehemiah 1, it is, it is page 383 in those hardback, uh, hardback black Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you, didn't, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that. That's our gift to you. If there's like kids writing in it or something, just take a different one. It's totally cool. Just let us know that one's there so we can, we can replace that as two. Uh, replace that too. But through this series, uh, as I started out last week, we're going to be going a little bit more into the deep end uh, than, than maybe some of our series that we do. Um, and last week I asked if you would be willing to do that with me. Um, no one answered me, so I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but through small groups and even through our teaching here and even outside of it, there's going to be ample opportunities to go deeper and deeper into this book. Um, some of the tools, uh, we hope to have more tools throughout this series, but not only uh, the study guides on our uh, first small groups, which are different, not, not connected to the sermon-based or anything like that, just a deeper study into Nehemiah, you got in your program on the way in a timeline. Um, that's also out in the foyer, you'll see on the wall, we have that timeline on there, and hopefully that is incredibly helpful um, in tracking from the Abrahamic covenant, which again, we talked about last week, I'll review today all the way up until Nehemiah. It's not exhaustive, not the whole story of the Bible, but it helps give some clarity to uh, connect some dots for you. So please keep your eyes open for more, more tools like that. If you do want to go deeper, if you don't, uh, I mean, we're going to provide them anyway. So um, <laughs> I encourage you to take advantage of those. Now, quick review to get us back into Nehemiah today. Uh, last week, we made it through the first two verses of the book, so if you're freaking out and saying it's going to be four years till we are done with this book, because it's 13 chapters, don't worry, we're going to get through a big chunk today. We just need to get some really important background before we jumped in. We had to get, as we talked about, you know, the submarine fight, we had to get below the surface and see what was going on to really get a full picture or, or, or the illustration used. If we're going to feast through this series like I believe we're going to, what's going to be good for us, uh, we had to set the table, and that's what last week was all about. But I, I want to get us uh, back into that and, and do a quick review, because if you're like me, I need repetition, um, and I think you guys are no different. So um, let's, let's read through those first two verses uh, again. Um, the first two verses, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, again, that's not in our calendar, it's, uh, we're on the Gregorian, that's the Hebrew calendar, it's different, about November, December, our time, okay? 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, king of Persia. While I was in the citadel of Susa, which is where the king lived, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Uh, now, there's a lot in there that we, we really didn't know until last week, and if you focused in last week, hopefully you left with some tangible understanding of, of this verse. Um, so, but if you didn't, please go back, watch that, um, even read through the, um, the timeline that you have there, but I encourage you to go back 
watch that. Um, not, not for my own vanity, but I think it's going to be helpful for getting through where we're, where we're going. But again, uh, many of us need to learn by repetition. So here's a refresher. Here's the Cliff Notes version of last week. Um, first of all, in Genesis 12, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. Um, and a covenant is, is a very serious endeavor. It's where you, you cut an animal like a lamb in half, and you stand in between there, and you say, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, you can make me like this, this lamb here, split in two. Um, pretty, pretty heavy. We don't really make promises like that anymore. We go pinky promises. It's a lot easier. Uh, but God made what's called an unconditional covenant with Abraham, meaning that uh, he, he stepped in the middle there. He says, okay, if I don't hold up my end of the deal, you can make me like this. And Abraham, if you don't hold up your end of the deal, you can make me like this. Kind of some foreshadowing for the gospel that we see there, what happened with Jesus. So anyway, um, promised, he promised three things, seed, soil, and savior. He promised a large family, the nation of Israel. He promised soil, the promised land. He promised a savior. The line of Jesus would come through. The Messiah would come through him. Those are the three things. But that promise was passed down generationally to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob. And Jacob, another name for Jacob in the Bible, is Israel. And Israel, or Jacob, had 12 sons. We know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. Hopefully that, that even connects some dots there for you if, uh, if you haven't gone through that before. <clears throat> but they were in famine in the promised land. Things were not going super well. So they ended up actually in Egypt where they quickly outgrew their welcome and were put into slavery. So they ended up in Egypt, put into slavery. They cry out to the God of the promise, the one that had been passed down. They cried out. He hears them, and through signs and wonders, he gets them out of the land of Egypt. And they find themselves at the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God once again makes another covenant with them. This one conditionally says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And if you want to sound really nerdy, because I, I don't know many people appreciate this, Ten Commandments that we know of that were given there, it's called the Decalogue a fancy word for it. You're not going to sound cool if you say that, but if you just want to sound smarter, that's for free. Um, the Decalogue, there you go. But this is, again, where God made that covenant with them uh, they, uh, and put his expectations on them. They rebel against God, and uh, what ends up happening is they spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. Now, uh, after that time, they end up entering into the land after many years. David is anointed as king. Uh, you know, King David, uh, David and Goliath David, you, you understand. Um, he ended up passing away, and his son Solomon came in, and he ended up building the first temple. This was an incredibly special place where God would dwell in the presence of the people, where they would worship their place of, of worship. And after Solomon's reign, after he dies, after Solomon's reign, the nation begins to fall apart. Wicked kings begin to rule. The, there's a split it's, it's, uh, where, where you have the northern tribes of Israel uh, known, that maintain that title Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom, Judah. Like It's this really weird um, situation that happens. And after uh, a lot of time, continued disobedience, uh, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom are taken into exile, first by Syria and then by Babylon. And after the southern kingdom is taken, in the, hopefully connecting the dots for you, after the southern kingdom is taken to Babylon we see the events of Daniel begin to play out. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or any of you guys that grew up with VeggieTales, Rackshack and Benny? There, there it is. Okay. Um, I'm just speaking your language. Got it. Um, they, Rackshack and Benny, they were, um, this is where they would not bow to the king, Nebuchadnezzar's you know, gold statue that he made. And so this is while they're in exile in the land of Babylon. So there's, there's hopefully a, a helpful correlation there for you. 
Um, but yes, the people had screwed up, um, but God had not given up. He was, fin- he was not finished with them. Um, and if they, if they're, they're, in their minds, they're like, if we don't get back into the land, rebuild the temple, all these prophecies about the Messiah aren't going to come true. And so we have to get back there. And at the end of Second Chronicles, I probably don't have to tell you what it says because you have it memorized. I know you guys. Uh, but Second Chronicles, the end of that, it talks about this king of Persia. Now, it was Artaxerxes, now Cyrus, king of Persia. Um, that was moved by the Spirit to actually send people back to Jerusalem to worship. Did you, did you catch that? Like the king of the known world sends these people that are um, in bondage, living in the land, sends them back and says, actually, go build the, the, the temple back in Jerusalem, would you please? It's God working an incredible work in his heart. Now we read, uh, we read about this kind of sending back um, on, by a... Uh, uh, in the first part of, part of Ezra, like chapters 1 through 6, I believe it is. Chapters 1 through 6, which is right before Nehemiah. Ezra then enters the scene in chapter 7, tries to lead a spiritual revival to no avail, doesn't happen. And with this historical picture, we end up in Nehemiah 1. That was a lot. Again, go back. Last week we went through it a little bit slower, but hopefully that was helpful. And Nehemiah is a Jewish man that was exiled at one point. But he's still in Persia from, from those exiles, and he is now working in the Persian government. And what we see throughout this entire narrative, from beginning to end, is that God was faithful. Through their disobedience, through their, their negligence, their pride, God was faithful, and he's providing a way back to the land that he promised all the way back at the beginning. So, with that in mind, let's look back at Nehemiah. He is, uh, is cupbearer. To the king, um, I'm going to jump ahead because the end of chapter 1 seems like we should have put that at the beginning, but he puts it at the end. After he, he prays, which we'll get into, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. That's how he finishes the chapter. So he's cupbearer to the king, and just what, what that means, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, he's not like the king's sommelier, if that means anything to you. It's not like he gets the wine and swirls it around, and it's very woodsy, and, and you'll love the oak on it. Like, it's not, it's not anything like that. Basically, um, it's, it's, you know, the, uh, he drinks the wine, eats the food, and then takes it to the king once he finds out it's not poisonous. Now, that's a good gig as long as the food is not poisonous, right? It's a cush job until it's not a cush job. It's going to go poorly. And so what he's doing is he's sipping something, not poison. Okay, king, here you go. And so that's, that's what's taking place. That's what it means. And so it's a good gig until someone actually tries to kill the king. But... If you know he has a cupbearer, would you even try to kill the king that way? I, I don't know. Probably you'd go through some other um, means. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, so he has the king's ear. He has the king's trust. And the story begins in winter in Susa, which is modern-day Iran. It's about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And we're here in the palace in Susa. And if you remember where we left off last week, we said that the report Nehemiah's brother brings to Nehemiah is going to set us up for the entire series. So let's read it. This is what he says in Nehemiah 1.3. And I'm going to put it up here, but read it from your Bible so you know I'm not making stuff up, okay? Um, Nehemiah 1.3. They said to me, those who survived the exile, the Jewish people that survived the exile, are back in the province, back in Jerusalem, in, in Judea, uh, or Judah, and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. Now this goes back 
again, to when the Babylonians came through, ransacked Jerusalem, knocked it completely, uh, completely over, and the people were carried into exile, um, completely leveled the city. And so what we see in the early chapters of Ezra, like we talked about, Cyrus first allowed the people to go back. Um, their first priority was the temple. Let's get the, God's dwelling place set up. Let's get this re, restructured, our place of worship sorted out. And then the walls got overlooked. Now Zerubbabel, who was the, the person that kind of led that first, uh, first stint of Jewish people going back. He was governor at the time. And if you ever need to remember, it's besides it being a cool name of Zerubbabel, uh, a good way to remember it is Zerubbabel went back to the rubble to rebuild the temple. Did you get that? Zerubbabel went back to the rubble to rebuild the temple. That's that helps me anyway, okay? Um, you feel free to use that as you would like. But Zerubbabel was the first one to lead that group. Now, 80 years after that, Ezra returns, brings in more Israelites into the land, and they, uh, to start the spiritual revival that didn't work, and the walls get overlooked again. And now about 10 years after Ezra did that, Nehemiah learns that the land is, they've been in the land almost 100 years now, and... The walls are still in shambles. Now, why is this a problem? Why is that that's such a big deal? Now, to understand that, you have to understand the importance of walls in ancient cities, okay? Uh, now, this is an example, real quick, before we get into that, this is an example of, of needing to go below the surface, get into a cultural context, and not look at this through our 21st century American lens, okay? We cannot transplant a word from today and how we understand it into a uh, you know, a context 2,500 years ago, because when we hear the ideas of building a wall, whole different context, okay? The last few years, we've heard that a ton. Building, that is not what it's referring to, okay? This, has, this is not a defense system against immigration. This is a defense system of an ancient city that has nothing to do with immigration, but outside oppressors. You cannot make a one-to-one -one correlation here. Walls were vitally, vitally important for something like the temple. That protection was very necessary. But not only do they mention that the walls are toast, he also says the gates have been burned. You think that would go hand in hand. Why did he specifically mention that? Well, gates um, in times of peace were the gathering place of prophets, and judges, and kings, and the like. Gates were, were kind of like the city hall where uh, legal issues were settled and judgments were handed out. And if the gates are in ruins, it means that there's no justice system in the city. And if the gates are in ruins, uh, this is also the place where, where the, the marketplace would be and social gatherings would happen. So the very uh, social vitality of the city is no longer in, is not in existence. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking. It's distressing. We see that come out in Nehemiah's response. But before we do that, before we read his response, I think it's important uh, that we reframe how we look at some of these people, uh, men and women in the Bible, that is. Because it, it can either be a very encouraging thing or a discouraging thing, if we're really honest, um, based on how we see them. Here's what I mean. The men and women of the Bible should encourage us, not because there's some spiritual giant that's, that's out of reach, but because they're so ordinary. They're very simple People. And if you read the Bible more and more, what you'll see is that God does most of his work in insignificant people and places. And my fear is, and what I've experienced personally, is that many of us kind of look at the men and women of the Bible, and even people around us that love Jesus and are pursuing him, as kind of like otherworldly. Like unattainable, a once-in-a-lifetime type 
players. Like we, we think they're Jordan or Serena Williams. They're, they're, they're unattainable. And so what ends up happening is that we look at Nehemiah and how he's going to respond here because it's really beautiful. We look at that and we say, oh, that's, that's Jordan. If I practice all I want to, I'll never be him. You're right that you'll never be Jordan. Sorry to burst your bubble. You're wrong that you can never be Nehemiah. You look at uh, Serena. You look at Elon Musk. You look at Steve Jobs, like these, these, these giants of their industries. And what we do is we look at men and women of the Bible and even those around us who are very serious about the Lord. And we like to put them in those categories of, of unattainable success, wealth, and talent. But in reality, I think if you pay attention to the Bible, they're not Jordan. They're the intramural basketball player that has to wear braces on their knees and ankles because they're completely blown out, just like us. They come from train wreck homes. They, they have identity crises. They, they, uh, they have doubts and fears. They're just like us. And what you see through the Bible, or what we see through the Bible, and even through this specific book, is this. We see through this book, we see an extraordinary God moving through ordinary people. A faithful God working through unfaithful people. A significant God working through insignificant people. And what was available to them now, Nehemiah, what was available to him then, is available now to us through the person work of Jesus. So all of us are on an equal playing field. You understand that? There's not one of us in this room, not one single of us that was not from birth in rebellion against God because of our sin. Do we have different giftings? Absolutely. But do we have the same power available to us? Absolutely. It's God that does the extraordinary. So what happens when we view um, people in the Bible and those around you differently than that? is you actually give glory to Nehemiah rather than to God. You give glory to your friend who's serious about the Lord, pursuing him, and it's a beautiful thing. You, you give glory to that person rather than giving glory to God for their, their work, his, his work in that person. And what you're actually doing is you're pulling down the power of God and elevating the role of man, and the second you do that, you get a trash, weak version of Christianity that's based on man's ability instead of God's. And tell me we haven't seen this happen throughout church history with pastors and leaders. When they're held up too high, to too high of a, too, like held up on a pedestal where they should never be. And so it's important, really important for us as we approach Nehemiah that we understand he's just an ordinary man who takes ordinary steps of faith and sees God do extraordinary things through that. The same that we can experience today. So with that in mind, let's look back and see how Nehemiah responds to this news. He says this. Oh, I'll, uh, actually, I'll, re I'll read from it. I don't think I have it up on the screen. I'll, I'll, read, I'll read from it. Verse, uh, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he says this. <clears throat> this is what he prayed. Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. <clears throat> I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. 
We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and mighty hand. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor and presence of this man. Now how many of you would say, yeah, that's what my prayers sound like. If we're honest, our our prayers, uh, this is a deep cut, okay? Uh, Most of our prayers sound like the 2010 country breakup song by Jaron Lowenstein called I Pray For You. Okay, I'll read the lyrics. I I mean, you guys already know it, obviously, but uh, I'll I'll read it for you. It gives us a great model for prayer. Starts out, this is the first, he says, "I, I, I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. What a lesson in that. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, he said, you can't go, and, don't, don't get tripped up. He, he said, you can't go hating others who've done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job. And you just pray for them. And this is what he prays. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. I think it goes without saying that this is not a great model of prayer, okay? (laughs) That song is stinging hilarious. Um, But on the other hand, on the other hand, Nehemiah's, uh, Nehemiah's prayer is uh, much like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. If, even if you haven't been around church, you've probably heard of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You have to say it in King James for some reason. Um, but that, that's the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. And there Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Lord, how do we pray? They've been following for a little bit. You'd think they'd understand. It's the basics, right? No, he says, how do we pray? And he says, pray like this. And I think we can look at Nehemiah and say the exact same. Um, and if you've, been, if you've been around a little bit, we've talked about prayer a few times and that prayer is often just a drift between praise and petition. Praising God for who he is, making much of who he is, and then bringing our request to him. And as we do that, we become more aware of how holy our God is and it leads to confession. This is kind of how prayer just circularly works. And you'll see the same outline in here. So let's look, because I think it, I think it, it works well. So he starts, with, he starts with praise in verse 5. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Just, this, just kind of beautiful language saying, I'm praising you for who you are. And then he goes into, slides into petition. And he says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He makes, he makes much of God with an acknowledgement that he is a God who hears. He doesn't neglect their hurts or their burdens or their needs or the desires of his children. He doesn't neglect that. Um, and we'll come back to that moment, but he hears them. And so then he says this, and it just leads to confession. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He recognizes that, that before I can be a part of the solution that I want to I I go to Jerusalem. I want to fix these walls. I want to sort out the city, get it protected, get it thriving once again. Before I can go there, I need to 
acknowledge that I'm part of the reason those walls are in shambles in the first place. I have to admit that I've been a part of the problem. Start with myself. It's my sin, my brokenness. It separates me from a holy God. I want to confess my part. And he says, I, I want to admit the part I played in all this, uh, for my heart, my attitude, my response, etc. And to bring this into today, when it comes to following Jesus, this is foundational, guys. Recognizing that it's my sinful heart and nature that has estranged me and when I set myself up next to a holy God, I fall woefully short. So first and foremost, I recognize the, the bend in my heart towards destruction. And know there's nothing I can do in my own power to save me. And so now I continually surrender and lay down my desires, my responses, my attitudes to his way. But man, are we slow to admit fault. We are a people and a culture that love to blame shift and find a scapegoat for something that may be our responsibility in the first place. But Nehemiah's prayer here, just like the Lord's prayer, confession and repentance, a turning from these things are paramount. And what confession does is it reorients our heart. It reminds us that we're broken and we're in need of a Savior. Because often we like to think that we're, we're pretty solid. We can save ourselves. Confession reminds us that we can't. Look what he does next. He actually reminds God of what God said. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, and then he actually quotes. Remember the instruction here. And after, after what we saw, I mean, do you really think God needs reminding here what he said? Absolutely not, right? After we saw last week and, and reviewed even today, God was faithful when his people weren't. He was continually remembering his promise and fulfilling it step by step, even through the unfaithfulness of the people. He hasn't forgotten, so why does he do this? What's happening, I, I think, is really beautiful. He's a Jewish man. He grew up with the Hebrew Bible, the, Hebrew, the Torah, the law. And he had such biblical literacy, that term that we've used, that he begins to pray the very words of God back to him. The promise that God has made. Those things, the word of God that he knows so well, it is, a, 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 is fueling not only how Nehemiah sees God, but actually how he prays to God. It's the, the words of God himself become the prayer. He's praying God's words back to him. And so what he's doing here is not because God needs a reminder, but as a reminder for his own heart. This is why understanding, I think, the big picture of the Bible and growing in biblical literacy matters because we wouldn't, we wouldn't doubt that God hears our prayer and that he's faithful. We wouldn't doubt that God uh, would, will fulfill his promises to us if we grasp how faithful he's been in the past. A better understanding of how, how God has worked and been faithful in the past will inform the way we pray in the present. Even Aubrey was sharing some of that even before. Because we know that he was the God who heard, heard them in the Exodus. He's the God who heard his people in the exile, and he's the same God who hears me now. And this awareness leads us, just like it did for Nehemiah, to really a posture before God, a posture of humility. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. See, what we learn through this book 
is that Nehemiah is a man of action. Clearly, he wants to go back, and, and he's detail-oriented. Spoiler alert, the king lets him go back, rebuilds the wall. I think you saw that coming. Um, it's been out for about 1,500 years, so you, you should have seen the, the read it already. But um, the, the, Nehemiah is a man of action. But the first thing he does is pray. And I think there's a lesson in there for us, that praying should always be the first thing that we do, but it shouldn't always be the only thing that we do. Look, there, there are things that happen in our world outside completely, outside of our control. There's nothing that we can actually do to fix this. Like, look at, look at say, what's happening in Ukraine, or look at you know, any, any war-torn country, anything like that. I live in Kansas City, Kansas. There's not a whole lot I'm going to be able to do to stop Vladimir Putin. Yeah, there's, I'm, I'm kind of helpless. I can post something like, oh, stop it. Okay, cool. Um, so prayer should absolutely be the first thing I do, but it maybe shouldn't be the only thing I do. And if we're honest, prayer is rarely the first thing that we do, let alone the only thing that we, or the, 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 you know, doing something else. So again, keep in mind that this type of prayer life that, that Nehemiah shows here is possible for all of us who are just like Nehemiah, but we don't. So the question begs, because listen, if we're all honest in here, we all struggle with prayer, okay? Uh, there's, there may be a couple of you in here that spend six hours of prayer in a day, like, dope. That's, I'm, I'm proud of you. Keep it up. That's not most people, okay? So begs the question, if we're, we can't even kind of find a few minutes, three to five minutes a day, do we really believe prayer is powerful? Do we believe that it's worth our time to commune with God? Do we believe that God even hears us when we do do that? So here's my question. If God could change the heart of Cyrus and allow Zerubbabel to go back, if he could change the heart of Artaxerxes and allow Nehemiah to return and fortify the city, why does he even need Nehemiah if he's got the kings? Because what we see happen is God doesn't tap the shoulder of the president um, the pastor, the CEO, he taps the shoulder of a regular guy doing his job day in and day out. He says, Nehemiah, through you I'm going to change history. God used a normal man to accomplish his purposes. So you, working that blue-collar job, you, working just day in and day out, maybe working overnight, so whatever you're doing, stay-at-home mom, whatever you're doing, God does some of his best work and normal people just like us. He used a normal man to accomplish his purposes. Why? Because God hears the prayers of his people and will answer. God cares about the desires of his, the hearts of his people. Nehemiah had a desire. He wanted to make a change. He wanted to fix the situation and kind of uh, be, begin to move the needle more towards the Messiah, more towards the, the, the restoration of all things that we would see. God cares about the desires of the people. He cared about the broken walls, cared about the failed justice system. He cared about the lack of social vibrancy in Jerusalem, the city of peace as it's called. God cares about these things then, just like God cared about them then. He cares about these things today. He cares about our culture. He cares about our communities and, and our way of interacting. He cares about our justice system, our, our crime rates. He, he cares about the hatred that we spew in conversations and interactions. God, God mourns the loss of innocent life uh, 
born and unborn. God cares about the falling apart of society and divorce rates and husbands and wives sleeping in, in beds in, in the wrong beds. He, he cares about the hypersexualization of our society and the dark evil that lurks one click away on our browsers. He cares about the trafficking of men, women, and children. He cares about the bullying of kids online and in real life. He cares about the rise of drug addiction. He cares about all of it. God cares about how we talk to each other and how we treat each other. He cares about how we post and even how we vent. He cares about how we care for other people. God cares about our longings and our dreams. God hears you. God hears your prayers. And just like He cared for them, He cares for us, and he's not finished with us in our world either. That's the heart of the gospel. In our rebellion, he sent his son to live the life that we couldn't live, die the death that we should have died, also that I could have a relationship with the holy God through trust and faith in the work of Jesus. We don't earn it. It's purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's freely given by faith and trust in Jesus. And if you're here and you're saying, I've done that. My faith is in Jesus. My, my, I know my future is secure. I can't wait. Because of the faithfulness of God through history and through Jesus' sacrifice, you get to now have a relationship with the Almighty God. You have the same ability as Nehemiah to make your prayers heard and deepen your relationship with Him. So why don't we do that? So, as I wrap up here, and I know saying those words, don't close your Bibles, don't zip up, just pause. What I want to leave you with as you take, take away and walk out these doors, is I want you to decide today. Don't leave until you've done this. Decide today when you're going to pray. And don't overachieve, like, oh, I'm going to, 45 minutes, three to five minutes. Just start there daily, three to five minutes, and see what God can do. Just set aside something, because if you don't, here's the key, you never will. Like, can we just be honest and say that if I have an hour free up in my schedule, I'm not like, man, I'm going to go use this time to pray. No. What, what do we do? We watch, like, catch a couple episodes on Netflix. We scroll on our phone. We, you know, whatever. Set aside time, because if you don't, you never will. And you'll wonder, then, why there's drift in our hearts. And to be clear, you can be a believer in Jesus and not have a set-aside time of prayer every day. But what I'll tell you is that the vibrancy and the fullness of the relationship promised to you in your relationship with God will not be experienced if, with God if you don't actually have an ongoing, growing relationship with Him. Like, you may get this. I, I, can have a, I can have a marriage. I can be married and not go on dates or have any sort of meaningful conversation with my wife where she gets to know, where I get to know her heart and she gets to know mine. But man, your marriage is significantly more vibrant when that is there, right? And so what you'll find is that you, you, as you use that three to five minutes to pray over your heart, search out those attitudes within you, those interactions, those responses that you know you need to fix. What you'll see is as you go throughout your day, if you start your day maybe just a few minutes on your, on your commute or whatever it may be, whatever your situation may be, before the kids wake up and, and go buck wild, what you'll see is that throughout your day, you'll be reminded of what you prayed for and be able to pray again. Man, I'm run, I'm ar it's 10 a.m. and I'm running out of gas. I need your strength here. I'm already needing to be reminded to live for you and not for myself. And as that happens over and over, look at that. You've got a relationship with God. An ongoing growing relationship purchased by the blood of Jesus and lived out through communion with him.
And this is what begins to transform our hearts. And what I'll tell you is what Nehemiah models for us here is not the way to external, that the, the way to external transformation is not through white-knuckled, guilt-ridden, I have to do these things, like I have to, I have to do all of these things, but it's actually instead uh, a transformation of our lives and our hearts is achieved through spending time with the Lord. Simple. You'll become more like Him. We know this is a reality, especially if you grew up in church, you sang about it. You'll know the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And what's the next line? The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we're actually going to do that right now. We're going to take a minute here and allow ourselves to come to him through something the church has participated in for 2,000 years called communion. And while this is a a practice for those of us in the room that are followers of Jesus, there will be a space for us to quiet our hearts before him. And for those of you that don't know him in this room, this is a chance for you to say, while you may not participate, it's a chance for you to say, man, I, I got questions, but Lord, I trust you. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need forgiveness. Lord, I trust you. Or maybe, maybe it's, hey, God, I, I need help. Like, help me. Give me the courage to be honest with someone near me. And I promise it won't be a burden. They will be excited that you allowed them into that space. But for those of us in the room that do believe and trust, may this be our prayer. Nehemiah 11, 111. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So I'm going to ask Dennis to go ahead and come up and lead us through.